Race matters. 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 I'd like to acknowledge that we are broadcasting on unceded Gadigal land. This land has been in the hands of generations of Gadigal custodians for thousands of years before us, and it will continue to be in their hands long after us. It's a meeting place for sharing knowledge, stories and song, and we are privileged to be part of that storytelling today and every day at FBI Radio. I pay my respects to Gadigal Elders past and present. We are broadcasting from Redfern right now, the birthplace of black theatre in this country and a site for resistance and resilience for First Nations peoples. We honour this in all the work we do and carry this into our conversation today. You're listening to Race Matters. This is a show that explores the values and complexities of race, culture and identity. I'm Sharika Halaludin. On today's show, we're asking, what if our institutions were life-affirming instead of death-making? It's a big question, but one that's at the heart of abolition, a political tradition that demands the end of prisons, as well as the end of the kind of world that could ever even have something as violent as a prison. Abolition asks, what if our world was built around care, dignity and love instead of colonial capitalist violence and profit? Our guest today, Latoya Aroha Rule, has been a leader in the fight for abolition in this place for many years. Latoya is a Takatapui queer and non-binary person who descends from Wiradjuri and Te Atiawa peoples. Since the 2016 death in custody of their brother, Wayne Feller Morrison, they've established the National Bandspit Hoods Coalition. Latoya's work across fields from their creative work to their research to their on-the-ground organising embodies the multitudes of an abolitionist praxis. Abolition is anti-carceral, anti-colonial, anti-capitalist. It's queer, it's radical, it's creative, And it imagines a world that is entirely unlike the one we live in today. A content note that this talk will mention black deaths in custody, police brutality and grief. And these are told from the lived experience of our guests and totally shaped their responses in the conversation. Whilst we don't go into too much detail, we do ask that you go gently and decide when the time is right for you to listen in, particularly if you or your community has a lived experience of all of this. In my dreams we were free We made peace with everything No more war, no disease No more kings or colonies
Latoya, I'd love to begin by asking, how would you personally define abolition? Firstly, thank you so much for having me on the show. And a shout out to everybody who's listening, particularly my Uber driver who got me here, who listens to the show, a wonderful, wonderful person. So um, it's a real privilege to be here on Gadigal land. What is abolition? It's such a big question. But for me, abolition is exactly what you said, imagining a future uh, where we're here and where we're present, both visually over audio. Obviously, this kind of work that we're doing today is abolitionist work because it's leaving and creating an archive um, of our existence. And I think for First Nations peoples across the world, being here for 80,000 plus years, um, the radical parts of that narrative and that story and maintaining that will also launch us into the future for where we need to go. So Indigenous knowledges, would be, I guess, taking a step back from the word abolition, I would say even further is is Indigenous knowledges and archiving these. So, yeah, I'm really grateful. A lot of your work is bringing together a lot of knowledge systems from the First Peoples and communities that you're part of and part of that, I guess, dreaming and looking towards the future. What's your personal journey been towards an abolitionist practice? So I grew up in actually quite a religious household, a Christian household, where my dad was a pastor, kind of elder in the church, and my mum looked after the creche. During that upbringing, um, my dad is Māori, my mum is Aboriginal Wiradjuri, my dad is Te Atiawa in Aotearoa, New Zealand, kia ora. Um, and through that experience, we've done a lot of outreach work with communities. So both of my parents, when they met, were homeless. They came together and found the church community as the community that was able to sustain them, but also us kids with things like housing and food and the day-to-day necessities. And through that experience, that led me to really understand a lot more and then being myself, becoming homeless as a young person. Um, That journey really yeah, brought it home to me that our specific needs in life is around freedom, is around freedom of association, is around our human rights to our needs, um, like housing, like food, like community, um, like spirituality, if you're so inclined, the rights that we should all be able to embody. I guess the development of that came through my upbringing and through my parents' and family's experiences. Moving on from that, as I got older, um, I also became a church leader. And I say for myself, I'm in a process of continual decolonization from that experience. Mm. But I definitely don't discount kind of some of the values and lessons that I learned. And through that process, I was also in charge of doing a lot of outreach work to communities and with communities and developing and building communities, particularly of young people seeing young people, including my own family members, cycle through the carceral system, coming out of the injustice system and not having a place to stay, being court-ordered on home detention to places like Christian Rehabilitation Centres, which is where I met a lot of people, and just walking with people through that experience led me into social work. And my social work degree led me into 
doing an honours around initially the issue of treaty and working with Aboriginal elders in South Australia on Ghana land where I grew up. Over the course of that time, my brother Wayne Fella Morrison died in custody and that changed the course and direction of my social justice work. Mm. But it also improved my advocacy and my passion um, for change and for justice because now it was my lived experience of losing a family member to deaths in custody, not just speaking about it. And so that process into what I am passionate about doing today is bringing forth all voices, but particularly voices of people with lived experience of the issues, knowing now how different my advocacy has transformed because of that experience, knowing how different that process has become as opposed to me advocating on the sidelines for somebody else or somebody else's family member. And that's not to discount our allies and solidarity work that we so need, but yeah, through that experience, I think the people who are closest to the issues are always closest to the solutions. Mm, Thank you for such a generous sharing of how this has been part of your life maybe for maybe even longer than people would even think of like sometimes the front line of change is not where you're expected to be you encounter moments of freedom but also injustice at home or in your broader communities and over the years you've been equally generous in sharing your story your family's loss and the unjust death of your brother, Wayne Fella Morrison. And I guess first I want to acknowledge this grief and how grief and the experience of violence is part of people's journey to abolition. And I guess as part of how you've channeled that energy, you've led a particular non-reformist reform campaign, the Banspit Hoods campaign. Um, What would you like to tell us about how this came together? So my brother Wayne Fella Morrison was incarcerated for six days. He was picked up on remand and put into Yatla Labour Prison in South Australia on Ghana land. Over the course of six days, we know now after a very, very extensive coronial inquest that people can go read about because of our wonderful journalists and others who have written about it. Um, he, at the end of the six days, was being transported out, supposed to be on video link with us in a court where my sister, my mum and I were sitting waiting for him to appear. Somebody literally ran into the court and gave the magistrate a note and the magistrate stood up and just said, this is very cryptic, I can't say what this says, but your family will have to go away and do your own labour essentially around where your son is, where your brother is. From that moment, we knew something was wrong. We started calling different hospitals. Um, We started calling different people that we knew, including legal representation and considering maybe something has just happened inside the prison. Maybe the video link just didn't work and there was a tech issue. Um, But then we came to find out that Wayne actually was in ICU after being spit-hooded by up to 14 officers um, and with eight officers inside of a transport van he was put face down at the back of that transport van and removed three minutes later and he never regained consciousness so walking in to see him after such a long time 
unconscious, you know, with a ventilator, um, with a heart monitor was, yeah, the start of a lot of that trauma for us. But in those moments, there were correctional officers staged outside of his door the entire time. We eventually ended up having them removed, but then there was security staged and they watched us for the three days that he was in hospital before we had to turn off his life support machine in the ICU. And just critically thinking now about that process, but even at the time, being surveillanced from the time that he, you know, went into custody to the very moment he was in that van, to the very moment that he was in ICU unconscious. And then even after the process of his death during the coronial inquest, that that surveillance has never left us. We were monitored going into that space to say our final goodbyes. We were only allowed two family members at a time, just as we've been monitored throughout the coronial inquest process. So my journey toward writing about this and the creative work that I've been doing, including my PhD now through Jambana at UTS, that has come because of the continual surveillance around just even my family members' experience, let alone the continual surveillance, uh, carceral surveillance upon Aboriginal people from when we're born. And even before then, intergenerationally, we hold that trauma to our present day and moving forward if we're considering something like parliamentary processes right now working with the government things that are happening in public we know that surveillance continues into our future as well and to stop that process to stop the government control over our lives I think we do only have abolitionist strategies to be able to do that So while my brother was in the van on his stomach, he had also been spit-hooded and cuffed by his wrists and his ankles. Um, And those, the spit-hood and the uncuffing of my brother happened to such a delay that he was essentially dead for 50 minutes, for 5-0 minutes. So it's very difficult to regain consciousness after that event. And that led to us, even though we knew the spithood didn't necessarily and still sadly don't know what caused Wayne's death. It was kind of undetermined by the coroner's position. We know that the spithood was part of why Wayne became unconscious. Um, and we also know that spithoods are used predominantly against people who, of course, are people of colour, Indigenous, Black, migrant people, people who are in custody and on the street and being restrained, but also in group homes where they're approved and also in immigration detention. So we know that these hoods have been used against multiple people of colour, but also people with disabilities, people who cannot fight for themselves and people in aged care. So we started through the process of Wayne's inquest, we started advocating more widely for all people who have been subject to this abuse, but also for all of us on the outside who are being surveillanced and who are more likely to come into um, contact with police and correctional spaces. Through that process, we've been able to drum up, I guess, more advocacy around what is a spithood, but also around torture and the issue of torture in Australia 
In many ways, the ban on spit hoods has been a vehicle to mobilise around injustice against people of colour who are more frequently policed, but also for people who are voiceless. Um, And I would say that going through these political processes has also been really beneficial uh, to consider what other kinds of reforms are possible. And I know that for my community and my family, but for a lot of people in Australia and indeed across the world, the ban on spit hoods in South Australia has built momentum against other types of restraints of police and restraints of the system and carceral restraints. And when we talk about reforming the system, for us, we definitely considered through the ban on spit hoods, how are we not investing and rather divesting from the carceral system? How are we restraining police? How are we restricting police? How are we speaking about the experiences of Aboriginal people in solidarity with other types of torture that is is happening to multiple different groups and one of the most wonderful creative parts of our protest action was when we held a mock grieving session essentially in the middle of Adelaide in Tandanyanga in Victoria Square in front of the coronial inquest and where all the courts are held and two of the main people who were part of organising well three actually shout out to Doa Department of Home Affairs, my homies forever, Um, you know, who created so much of our wonderful strategy. I'll leave it at that. Um, But also one of my very dear friends who is a Palestinian resistance fighter was also part of the strategy and the work of that process um, where we dressed up officers, mock officers, white allies who put their, you know, face on and bodies on the front line. And we we hooded them with mock hoods that were made by an incredible um, artist here in Sydney um, from House of Helmudi. Shout out to you. And, you know, there was just so much collaboration and solidarity between people, yeah, from various different cultural groups and backgrounds, but also who were representing, you know, resistance to torture in their own countries and resistance to torture in Australia and South Australia. Um, just that bringing together as an abolitionist strategy also around what do borders look like and how do they separate us in our own activism is something that we considered. But ultimately why we say the ban on spit hoods was a non-reformist reform is because of that divestment and because of that solidarity building and because of those instruments of torture that are used globally that, you know, have been called Guantanamo Bay type devices, like a spit hood. Um, the abolition of those, I believe, is symbolic of where we're needing to move within Australia and with the abolition of the state. One of the other pinnacle parts of dressing up the corrections, mock corrections officers, um, was that we had them wear badges that said silence and we put the hoods on them and the front of the hood was made out of a potato sack, I believe, or that kind of mesh material. Um, and the back of the hood was made out of cut up British flags that were sewn back together and disjointed to represent the colony. And the point particularly of that imagery was about the silencing that the state imposes 
upon our bodies, literally the subjugation of our voices and our breaths, but more so the silence that they were utilizing in my brother's coronial inquest, where sadly up to 18 officers and one nurse, um, but particularly the eight officers in the transport van where Wayne was put, refused to speak about what happened inside the van and took up at that time what's called the penalty privilege against self-incrimination, which allowed them not to speak about the extenuating circumstances of what happened to Wayne. And so there was a whole bunch of silence and subjugation and, you know, a real oppression on us to seek any type of justice through the inquest that the outside work, that creative work became the most pinnacle um, to drum up not only for us, but really globally for those who are being spit-hooded and tortured and murdered today across the world. Latoya Aroharu, activist, writer, working to ban the use of spit-hoods in this country. Their journey towards this has been deeply rooted in grief and love, as well as the power of creative protests. Here's more from Latoya on how they work together to achieve something momentous winning an overturn of the use of spit hoods in South Australia and where the campaign is now. So not many people know, but the South Australian ban on spit hoods actually started with two failed bills that were put forward to SA Parliament by Connie Bonaros, who is an independent um, in South Australia still to today. And they were put up in early 2016 after the Four Corners preview of my brother Dylan Voller, who was visibly restrained with a spit hood and in a restraint chair in Dondale. A lot of us can remember that, but if you haven't seen it, err on the side of caution and consider what that brutality might look like in your imaginary, because it's obviously a hundred times worse for Dylan, but also just witnessing on that Four Corners report. From that, I would have thought that banning spit hoods and restraint chairs would have become a national issue immediately and that that could have been done overnight by the attorneys generals, but it wasn't. And that goes to show why the two bills that were put forward for banning spit hoods, at least in South Australia, for young people in youth prisons uh, failed. So if they were banned at that time, Wayne may have been alive today because we know that that ban was trying to also incorporate adults at the time, but again failed. So then Wayne died with a spit hood, and we took it upon ourselves with Connie Benaris at the time only to start advocating around the ban on spit hoods. I remember on the anniversary of Wayne's death, the first year anniversary, I was sitting in Parliament while Connie Benaris put forward Feller's Bill, or what we call Wayne Feller Morrison Feller's Bill, Um, for the first time and it was only me alone in that parliament which I'd done before in different ways because of my advocacy work with elders Um, but this time it was just me with all of them watching them and you know when they chose to consider the bill and turn to me and that kind of moment I always remember that I was quite aggressive in my approach at that time and I remember standing up, you know, it's probably not recorded, but I remember standing up and just saying, you're going to be held accountable. I remember all of your faces and your names at this time, you know, 
And so I guess from that moment, I started meeting with different independents and different politicians and different parties. Um, but there just wasn't enough uh, sustained momentum around the issue. So the inquest took at least six years because it kept on stopping and starting over the time. And that was because the officers were trying not to speak and went to the Supreme Court and tried to overturn the coroner, etc., etc. It's a very terrible story of injustice. But that did actually give us time to start rallying different individuals across Australia and to start signing the petitions and to start getting um, support from different groups overseas. So by the time it came to the final sitting weeks of the inquest, it actually almost worked in our favour a little bit, not for our grief and trauma process, but it actually meant that by that time, Time magazine were covering it, the Washington Post were covering it in the world news. I had established wonderful relationships that are still here today with some founders of Black Lives Matter and doing different work over in America and spreading these words about what was going on um, here in Australia. And so there was this kind of fear, I think, that if we don't bend Spithoods right now, at least in this city, what is going to be the outcome for the election? Because it was also coming up to election time. Um, on top of that, and during that course of time, just you know, drumming up more support, getting some funding to the point where we literally had our own journalists sitting in court. We had our own scribes, our own people, you know, updating Twitter, our social medias, like literally we had our own media team. So we didn't by that stage rely on anybody else, whether they wanted to cover it or not was secondary to what we were doing. And we just kept on pursuing and kept on pursuing. And after that event that I explained in the middle of the city, that like literally two hours later, we received a message by the Department of Correctional Services saying that they had banned them operationally. So from that moment of banning them operationally, I think they thought we would just be happy and celebrate. And all the media was kind of like, "What? Are you, how do you feel? Oh, my gosh. And we were like, this is not enough. Nothing but legislative reform, right? Because anything we know can be overturned with a new government or with a flick of a pen. If somebody changes their mind, they can just undo what they said. And you can never trust a politician. I trust individuals and how they are with me, but I don't trust government. And that's just what it is. And so... We then started drumming up even more support to the point where we got 27,000 people sign a petition mm -hmm. in like a very short amount of time. And we took our officers, we marched them. This was a second protest. We took the officers, we marched them from the coroner's inquest to the steps of parliament through the city. So you can imagine what that must have been like for the public. The staged morning site, I guess we can call it that, the morning event. Um, and we marched them with flowers, native flowers, that also had the photos of George Floyd and the photos of resistance fighters in Palestine. And we've done that again to always be, as you said, securing that message that this is much greater than just one individual, which is what Australia loves to do, single out our issues to make them single people issues and just care about that one person, but not actually think systemically. So right the way along we were thinking systemically which when we tabled our petition 
and got that win and had that achievement and they spoke in parliament about this issue, one of the most, I think, wonderful things about what was said that day is that, you know, Wayne's death, as tragic and unnecessary and horrific as it is, actually has promoted for all of Australia now an ongoing change. And that was said by literally an ex-cop who was initially against the ban on spit hoods and changed after we worked with him on this issue. Fuck the police, but he was a wonderful guy too. (laughs) Um, Individual. And so from that moment, we knew, okay, again, because our commitment to systemic abolition, not just an abolition in South Australia, what does that mean? We developed the National Band Spit Hoods Coalition and we started gathering different groups and organisations together who had the same goals around abolition. So we're thinking Sisters Inside, Amnesty International, the Foundation for Young Australians, the National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Legal Service, and a whole bunch of other wonderful change makers and advocates. And we started meeting more frequently once every fortnight at the beginning. It's come off a little bit now as we're waiting, but you know, this ban has now contributed to massive achievements so far, only operationally though. So over the last, I think it's coming up to two years soon of the coalition's existence, since 2021 when we had the ban in SA. So over the past two years, we've been able to advocate for, at the highest level, um, the Australian Federal Police to ban spit hoods, which is huge. (laughs) Um, So that means, obviously, for immigration detention across Canberra, that they're now restrained from using spit hoods. We've had different reports come out from ombudsmen, from children's commissioners. Um, I also recently got to speak to the United Nations, the Subcommittee for the Prevention of Torture Committee, who then in their final review of Australia recommended that Australia ban them and directly connected them to deaths as well, which is, again, such a testament to everybody's work and action. You can imagine what that means to the young people and adults who are surviving and who have survived through those processes of hooding, being hooded. There's just such great injustice that I think people aren't necessarily recognising at this stage around timeliness. And we can't wait. We can't wait for another report. We can't wait for another action. Not only are we tired, but what more can we say if, if the human heart is not moved because somebody's being tortured Um, then that's an issue, again, for the state. It's not an issue for individuals. And at the moment, the biggest thing that we are waiting for is for the Attorneys General of Australia, so they're named SCAG, and they're meeting at the end of this month slash in July to determine, again, how they're going to proceed with the legislative ban on spit hoods. So to date, they've already said that they will look at the issue Um, But now we're waiting for them to act. And that's probably our greatest hope at the moment for a ban on spit hoods. The last thing that they can do, of course, is say that it's a state, individual state issue. But we know that the Attorneys General of Australia collectively have the right and the capacity and the ability to ban spit hoods right now. 
I think what's the determining issue and factor there is that not only have people been spit-hooded who deserve reparations and deserve, you know, financial um, accountability, but also grief and trauma um, that that could bring up for a lot of people. I also believe, again, because we've situated this campaign around systemic issues of torture in Australia, it could actually become something much greater, and I really hope it does. I want to pick up on something that you mentioned about timeliness and the obvious urgency of all of this, but also, you know, you've just mentioned um, we've taken two years to get to this particular point, and within abolition, you want an entirely different world, but getting there doesn't happen overnight. I was wondering, how do you think through the timeline of abolition and the abolitionist struggle? It's interesting thinking about time and space. I think for a lot of First Nations people, we've been here so long, (laughs) and we know that we'll be here for so much longer, whether in physical form or spiritual, or really if you look around in every other form of country and kin. And so there are diversities, I think, for everybody to consider the timeliness of different strategies. But there isn't necessarily time for abolition. And I know that sounds a bit weird, but what I mean by that is that abolition needs to be a daily process. And until our last breath, until we finish, we have to be doing abolition. It's not something for me, actually, I'll take a step back. When people say imagining abolition, that's something I think that we need to literally do when we wake up and that we need to try to embody. I think sometimes people see abolition as the end goal and that there are strategies. And I know that that's a great way of how to explain the process of abolition, but we really might not be here tomorrow in terms of physically, right? We can't wait for abolition I guess the timeliness factor maybe needs to be taken out of it Um, because it it's not just in saying it can't be delayed it's more like we need to step into it and step out into it like with every step yeah Mm, is it a way of thinking through abolition in a way that is also outside of conventional and capitalist time as well like it there's not a deadline for this work which doesn't take away from the sense of urgency but it's a whole recalibration of how we're navigating the spaces that we're in exactly yeah I agree you just said there that it's outside of time and sorry outside of capitalist constructs of things right and that's exactly why I'm challenged on the issue of time and just thinking around time and space in general lately Um, has been just such an exciting project for me, (laughs) Um, especially when, and, you know, depending on who you are and who's listening, but a lot of my teachings lately have been coming through really vivid dreams. Um, I had an incredible one recently that I recorded actually when I woke up and it was while I was listening to Māori instruments, um, our pūoro, and I had this incredible perspective that I've never had before about space and alternate space. And I think um, 
where we go or, you know, what's around that we can't see. And I'm not a scientist or anything, but yeah, there's, there's a lot more happening between individuals and around us than we can actually see or dictate. And I'm a big believer of speaking things out into being and, you know, being really intentional with that kind of stuff and being really open hearted to different experiences. Because I've seen, even through the band on Spitwoods, how somebody like a cop can come around who represents all the cops, the PSA, the Public Services Association, that is the police, um, and sorry, is the correctional services and the police unions as well, how they can be transformed and turned into an abolitionist strategy like how does that happen right I I don't yeah I don't trust police as far as I can throw them but when we consider that we actually need to to undo and unearth the cop in each of us as well that also means the police sadly it also means police having to walk out of their jobs it also means the collapse of the police unions and the prison system and that's going to have to be a worker's struggle right that's going to have to be anti-capitalist anti-colonial struggle because you're talking about individuals defunding and divesting um, their own means of living and so we need to be here i think to create a means of living and a way of living that other people want to be part of and when i think about that i do think about hope i think about Audre Lorde, I think about Bell Hooks, I think about a whole bunch of Indigenous scholars and people who speak about love and hope in these movements, but that it is anti-carceral love and hope. It is, um, you know, the hate of the system while loving the neighbour kind of stuff if I am to go back to my childhood. <laughs> not trying to preach at anybody, but yeah, exactly what you said. It's not really about time. It's about this individual connection with each other. Um, is where abolitionist, abolitionism starts and ends, I think. I want to continue on this thread as we come into the last question. Yeah. Some of our listeners may remember your name as you shared some beautiful words for our event, Imagination as Practice, which you sadly couldn't make it to. Um, and within that event, we were unpacking links between a creative practice and a political practice. If we understood abolition as a creative practice in and of itself, how do you think more people could feel like they could be part of it? I love this question because I I remember dating somebody and we were talking about this very point about creativity. And I constantly remember, remember me saying, I'm not a creative person. I just love drumming up the creative parts of other people. And I love bringing people together for these common causes and working through political activism. That's what's been able to be achieved. Wanting to foster that passion meant that in every single step of my journey so far, I've intentionally made space and considered as much as I can. I'm not perfect. I love that being queer has really informed a lot of my practice as well around creative development. Um, and with the ban on spit hoods, I just, I know that they're two separate things, but particularly with that point, we considered who are the artists, you know, um, and what does that mean? And I had to transform my own understanding about what creative practice is and to see myself as a creative person, 
before I could actually invite anybody else to be part of any other creative process. So I had to give up that part of me too. Um, And I started thinking when I grew up, again, back to my mum and dad, they didn't go to primary school for the most part or they went for a few years here and there. I think about the people who can't read and write in our communities. I think about the people who have various disabilities. I think about and abilities in every single term that they want to use as well and how they identify and what they bring, like that there are so many elements of creative practice in that and experience that we can't see. And that's why I love talking about subjective analysis as everybody is useful and everybody, I think, wants to be part of this kind of process. That is all for Race Matters this week. I'm Sharika Halaludin. Thank you so much to our guest Latoya Aruharul for sharing so generously about their life and the ways in which we can begin to imagine a world that is life-affirming and of justice through abolitionist dreaming. A special shout out to one of the newest members of the team, Sam Harron, for producing that piece. You'll be hearing more of Sam's work in the coming months. I'll definitely be revisiting that conversation for a long time and you can as well. If you want to listen back to episodes of Race Matters, head to fbiradio.com slash race matters. Race matters. Race matters. Race matters. Race matters. Race matters. Race matters.